The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. This morning we will begin in verse 31 and continue to the end of the chapter. Luke 13, 31. Luke writes, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray. And God, as we approach your word, the Bible, We know that unless your Holy Spirit enlightens our minds, we will not understand. Unless he helps us, we will not be changed. And so we pray for both this morning. As your word goes out, may it plant deeply in our hearts and bear much fruit. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you've ever been to MCU Stadium in Brooklyn, New York, today home to the Brooklyn Cyclones, you would see a statue that is out in front of the park, a statue that commemorates a remarkable event in Major League Baseball history. It was an event that took place on May the 14th, 1947. On that day, the Cincinnati Reds were playing against the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was an away game for the Dodgers. They were playing in Cincinnati at Crossley Field. But it was a unique day for a new player for the Dodgers was taking infield practice at first base just before the game started. It wasn't any player, just any player. His name was Jackie Robinson. He was the, really the first black man to make it in Major League Baseball. Up to that point in baseball history, Major League Baseball had been uh, basically an all-white affair. If you were a black man and you were a baseball player and an athlete, you were forced to play in what was called the Negro League. You couldn't play in Major League Baseball. 
That was until 1947, when Jackie Robinson was picked up by the Brooklyn Dodgers. On this particular day, May 14th, on this trip to Cincinnati, it was his first year with the Dodgers, and it was really one of the first road games that he had played. They were playing in Cincinnati, and let's just suffice it to say it was not a welcoming environment for him there. As he was taking infield practice before the game, the fans were heckling him and taunting him. They were yelling all sorts of racist taunts and epithets at him, slurs, calling him snowflake, shoeshine boy, anything they could to try and humiliate and demean him. But in the midst of that, it had gone on for some time. On shortstop, there stood another player for the Dodgers. His name was Howard Pee Wee Reese. He was a veteran player for the Dodgers, well-respected in Brooklyn and really all around the league. He was a team captain for the Dodgers at this particular point. Seeing the events that were unfolding there in Cincinnati, he did something quite remarkable. He took off his glove and he walked diagonally across the field from shortstop to first base. He put his arm around Jackie Robinson's shoulders and he began to talk to him. And in the midst of their conversation, he just sort of turned him and he began to face both the Cincinnati Reds dugout and the crowd behind that was jeering. Pee Wee Reese on that particular occasion taught a seminar for anybody who was watching on leadership. As he stood there, his arm around Jackie Robinson, continuing the conversation, the jeers and the taunts of the crowd began to slowly die down and fade away. Jackie Robinson later said, that that arm around his shoulder saved his career. He told a news reporter at the time by the last name of Khan this. He said, after Pee Wee came over like that, I never felt alone on a baseball field again. In spite of it all, Jackie Robinson won Rookie of the Year that year. But Pee Wee Reese really taught a seminar on leadership on the baseball field on that particular day in Cincinnati. What he displayed for anybody who was watching and really anybody who hears of the story long after he is gone from the scene of baseball history is he displayed for us two essential characteristics of true leadership. And those two characteristics are both courage and compassion. He displayed courage in the sense that he wasn't intimidated by the crowd and he wasn't afraid to take a stand. He didn't care what anybody thought. He didn't care what the effects would be on his career. He simply knew what right looked like and he took action. He was a man of courage, but he's also a man of compassion. He simply could not stand by and watch something like that happen. Not to anyone for that matter, but certainly not to a colleague and not to a friend. 
And his compassion drove him to not allow his friend to suffer alone. And so with a simple walk and a simple arm around the shoulder, he showed what leadership looks like. It looks like courage and it looks like compassion. These days, the nation in which you and I live is suffering dearly from a severe lack of true leaders. We look around at the folks who rise up to prominence in our culture, and it's hard to find any true, genuine leader. You know, the kind of people who know what right looks like and are willing to do it, whatever the cost. The people who lead with both courage and compassion. It's true on the national scene, but it's also true within the context of the evangelical church in America. There are some who, who, who are leaders who are courageous, but they're also self-serving, egotistical jerks who trample on anybody that gets in their way to accomplish their means. There are some who are compassionate and yet weak and fearful, who cower at any threat and hide when the going gets tough. What we desperately need are leaders who lead with courage and compassion. When we look at our text at the end of Luke chapter 13 today, we see Jesus once again display for us what that looks like. What it looks like to be a leader who leads out of both courage and compassion. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to sort of look at the text through that lens this morning. I want you to see that kind of leadership, and I want you to, to marvel at it, and I want you to be inspired by it. And I want you to ask your own self, am I that kind of a model for the world around me? Am I the kind of leader who leads with courage and compassion in whatever my sphere of influence is in the world around me? and in the church where I serve and work and worship. We see first, at the beginning of our text, really Jesus showing us a profile on courage. He says, Luke does, at that very hour some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So Luke, as he has quite frequently in his gospel, gives us a time marker here. He says, at that very hour. So he locates this particular event uh, really in close proximity to the message that Jesus has just delivered in the previous context before. If you were with us last week, you would know, because we talked about it, that Jesus had just delivered a sermon. In his sermon, he had, he had encouraged, in fact, exhorted the crowd, and he had said to them, you must enter, strive to enter through the narrow door. You remember that? Strive to enter through the narrow door. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you enter through the narrow door. And by that, he meant through him. And at the end of that message, he said something that would have been outrageous to his audience of largely Jews. He said, some who are first will be last, and some who are last will be first. And what he was communicating to that crowd is, you cannot rely on your Jewish heritage. The Jews who had thought they were a shoe-in for the kingdom are going to find many of them, are going to find themselves on the outside of the kingdom of God when it all sorts out in the end. And they're going to be looking through a window and they're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob 
and all the great men of faith that they looked up to as heroes, dining at the table with the Lord, and among the people on the inside are going to be the people they thought were last, the Gentiles. It was a message that would have infuriated the religious Jews and certainly the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. And so it's on the, the heels of this message that some of the Pharisees cannot hold back their tongues any longer. So they approach Jesus, and Luke tells us that they issued to him both a directive and a warning. You need to get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. That's the message. Now, it's quite unclear for us in the context exactly what their motives are. If you read commentaries, you'll find that they speculate all over the place. Some would argue that these are friendly sort of sympathizers within the, the group of Pharisees who are trying to do Jesus a solid favor here and help him get out of harm's way. That, to me, seems rather unlikely in the broader context of how Luke has portrayed the Pharisees thus far. It seems more likely that they're furious with what Jesus has just proclaimed, and they want at all costs to shut him up and to get him gone. At best, at worst, perhaps their motive was to, to try to move him out of the area where he was east of the Jordan into the other side of the Jordan where the Sanhedrin had jurisdictional authority so that they might do what they'd been planning to do for quite some time, kill him. Whatever their motives are, they deliver the message. And the warning was clear, Herod wants to kill you. The Herod he's talking, they're talking about here is Herod Antipas. We've run into him already before in Luke's gospel. He is, as we've noted before, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you might recall, died, and he had three sons. His kingdom was then split up among the three sons. I have a map that I think I can show you here at some point that will kind of help you see, at least territorially, how that kingdom sort of played out. I know you can't see it from where you are, but you can at least see the yellow portion there up in Galilee and then down in Perea off to the right of the uh, Sea of Galilee. That is where Herod Antipas, one of uh, Herod the Great's three sons, had ruling authority in those areas. And Jesus is down in this section to the right over near per in Perea uh, where, when all this is, is taking place. But this is Herod Antipas who rules this particular area. He is, again, the Tetrarch of Galilee and, and Perea, ruled from somewhere around 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. And we've already seen that this man was an evil man in so many ways. The Jews hated him already because he had built his capital city, Tiberias, on a Jewish cemetery, desecrating that particular place. He did things like that quite frequently. We've also seen that he was an immoral man, a man who had an, has this uh, uh, illicit affair with his brother's wife and then goes on to marry her. John the Baptist confronts him on that. And we've run into him already again in Luke's gospel. He is responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. We're told in chapter 9, which was our most recent encounter with him, that he was perplexed at the ministry of Jesus. In verse 7, we're told Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, that is all that Jesus was doing, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. Not only was, a, was he an evil man, but he was a paranoid man, no doubt dealing with the guilt of the murder of John the Baptist. He was a paranoid man who was now a fearful paranoid man thinking that John the Baptist had been resurrected 
and was coming after him. So the thread that was issued here by the, these Pharisees is a plausible and viable thread. And it wasn't a new thread for Jesus. Really, from the time he was born, people have been trying to kill him. In fact, in the very birth narrative that we, we see in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 6, we see really before he was two years old, Antipas' father, Herod the Great, was trying to kill him. You remember in verse 16 of chapter 2? After the, the arrival and departure of the Magi, we're told this, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. Why did he kill all those children? Because he was trying to kill Jesus. Just in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, we saw Jesus go to his hometown, Nazareth. And you remember, he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he opens the scroll from Isaiah and begins to read. And he delivers a message in relation to that text that infuriated his neighbors in Nazareth. And we were told in chapter 4, verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. They literally wanted to throw him off the cliff and kill him. And of course, the religious leaders throughout his ministry were trying to kill him, to find a way to do that. John reports in John five eighteen, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. By the time he was born, somebody's been trying to kill him. So the message wasn't a new one. The threat wasn't even a new one. But the suggestion was, get away from here. Jesus, you really need to just clear out of this region. You need to shut down your ministry here, and you need to get somewhere safe because there's a, there's a bounty out on your head. The king wants you dead. Now, it's fairly easy for us who are far removed in history from this, who sort of know how the story unfolds, to undersell the impact of this warning. I mean, how would it affect you if somebody came into your world and said to you, hey, Somebody's trying to kill you. Somebody wants you dead. You need to just quiet down and go dark for a while. Get out of town. Lay low. What if you were doing Christian ministry somewhere and somebody came along to you with some level of authority and said, hey, the ruling authorities are going to kill you if you keep this stuff up. You keep it up and you're going to get arrested and you're going to be imprisoned. And if you don't stop right now and quiet down and move on to another place, your life is going to be taken from you. How do you respond to something like that? I can tell you this, much lesser threats have gotten many of Christ's followers to be quiet, be still, and move on. But Jesus does not do that. His reply is remarkable. He says to the Pharisees, go and tell that fox, I've got a message for him. He doesn't try to hide from the threat. He says, here, Herod wants to kill me. I've got a message for Herod. If he's trying to kill me, I've got something to say to him. 
I'm not the least bit intimidated by those threats. This word fox that he calls Herod is really a remarkable thing. It's a metaphor that sort of had meaning both in Jewish and non-Jewish cultures at the time. In both cultures, it signified somebody who was sort of sly and crafty, someone who was slick, if you will. But in Jewish culture in particular, it, it, re, it was often used uh, to refer to someone who, who fancied himself a fierce lion, but who was in reality a much smaller animal. Someone who thought themselves really big and powerful, but who in reality wasn't much more than a nuisance. Someone who had an inflated view of their own self-importance. He makes his thoughts about Herod known in one word. He's making abundantly clear he's not afraid of Herod. He's not afraid at all. He understood that his life was safely in his father's hands. In comparison to God the Father, Herod was a nobody who had no power to do anything, much less take his life. He was no lion to be afraid of. He was a fox. He was a nuisance. You go tell that fox. Tell him this. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. This phrase, cast out demons and, and perform cures, is a, a present tense. It's, it's continuing action in the present. Jesus is saying, that this is sort of a, 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 an umbrella phrase that encapsulates all the ministry that he's been doing. And what Jesus is saying here with this phrase is simply this. I'm going to keep on doing today and tomorrow and the next day what I've been doing all this time. I'm going nowhere, and I'm not going to quiet down, and I'm not going to stop. I'm going to continue to execute the ministry that my father's called me to, regardless of your threats. Now, at first glance, you might think that he's sort of pointing out into the future at his resurrection when we hear this today, tomorrow, and the third day. But really, this was just a common expression that was sort of a colloquial phrase that was used in, in the culture at the time that just denoted a short, sort of definite period of time. And Jesus is simply saying to the Pharisees, you go tell this insignificant nuisance of a man, here's what you tell him. You tell him, I'm going to keep doing the ministry God's called me to do. I'm going to keep on healing. I'm going to keep on casting out demons. I'm going to keep on teaching for a little while longer. I'm going to keep on doing the ministry God's called me to, and I'm going to do it until I'm finished. And when I'm finished, I'll move about. You see, Jesus was working on a divine timetable, and he understood that. His ministry and his calling and his steps were ordained by his father. And his food, he told us, was to do his father's will. And there was nothing that was going to stop him. And there was no threat that was going to deter him. He was laser-focused, if you will, on the ministry that God had called him to. It didn't matter who tried to shut him up or stop him, even if it was the king. He would obey his father. 
He says in his response, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus understood very clearly that his ministry and his mission led him ultimately to a Roman cross where he was going to die. And he knew that that was going to take place in Jerusalem. In fact, he had said it on more than one occasion. In mentioning this here in his reply, Jesus is really saying something that's very ironic, isn't he? He's saying, Herod, you're threatening to kill me. But what you don't realize is I am going to die, but it's not going to be by you and it's not going to be here. It's impossible for me to die anywhere apart from Jerusalem. Because that's the way God's ordained it. You see, Christ was crystal clear on his calling. He was crystal clear on his mission. He had come to redeem men. He had come so that through his sacrificial death on a Roman cross, where he would, he would go, he would die, he would be nailed, he would bleed, a crown of thorns would be jammed into his head, and he would pay the full price for the sins of all who would believe upon him in the history of humanity. That was his mission he had come to pay the price for our redemption, and he would not stop until his work was finished. He would not stop until his body was brutally beaten beyond recognition. He wouldn't stop until nails were driven through his hands and his feet. He wouldn't stop until a crown was jammed into his head, a crown of thorns. He wouldn't stop, in fact, until his, until his bloody, swollen, parched lips uttered the words, It is finished until he was finished he would never stop until he got to Jerusalem it was impossible for him to die because he'd come to finish the work God had called him to do it's a remarkable response it's a response born out of courage a response born out of courage and he models for us here, I believe, not only how leaders should operate, Christian leaders should operate within the context of the world and within the context of the church, but he models for us how I think Christian citizens ought to live in both contexts as well. We're to be people who live courageously. We're not to be wimps. We're not to be people who live in fear and cowardice all the time. We're not to be people who cower at every threat and back up anytime somebody brings resistance to the work that we're doing. Jesus models courage. His courage was sort of born out of a, a confidence in God's protection. He knew that God had ordained the work that he was doing, and he knew that he was not vulnerable to any threat until God deemed it time for him to finish his work. He didn't have to fear Herod. He didn't have to fear anybody because God was sovereignly protecting him until his time to die. His courage was born out of a confidence in God's protection. His courage was born out of a confidence in God's plan for his life. He wasn't going to be diverted from God's plan. He was completely secure in his calling, and he was going to continue to do the will of God. And he knew, as long as he was continuing to do the will of God, that he would continue to do the will of God until he completed the work God had sent him to do. And there was nobody, not even the king, who could stop it. 
It's the kind of courage that reminds me of another example in the Old Testament. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the three young men in Daniel's day who were threatened by the king, who were threatened with their deaths if they didn't stop doing what God had called them to do? And the king even throws them into a furnace, burning furnace, trying to kill them. And as he threatens them with such a thing, threatens their life, they stand before the king completely confident in God's protection and in God's plan for their life. And they say to the king, the most powerful man in the land, listen, O king, we will not bow before you and we will not worship your idol. Our God is able to save us from you and from the fire. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow and worship. It's courage, my friends. It's the courage that Christ exemplifies for us here. And it's the kind of courage that the world around us desperately needs to see coming from the church of Jesus Christ. As our culture continues to sort of deteriorate around us, we cannot be people who live in fear. We have to be the kind of people who live with firm convictions, people who do the work of the ministry Christ has called us to do, people who know what right looks like and are willing to do it whatever the cost. We have to be people who are not easily intimidated, who can't be intimidated by authorities and Hollywood and social media mobs and anyone else who would try to thwart the work of God he's called us to do. Christ was a leader who led with courage. And I believe he calls his people to be people of courage. But not just courage in isolation. The kind of courage that's married up to a true compassion. And that's what we see in the second part of our text this morning from Christ. We see in the first part uh, sort of a profile on courage. In this last part, we see a profile on compassion. As he says these things, we're told, he looks out over Jerusalem, or at least in the distance. He can't physically see it from Perea. But in his mind's eye, if you will, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. As Jesus thinks of Jerusalem... As he says, I'm not going to die until I get to Jerusalem, he begins to think of Jerusalem. And as he thinks of Jerusalem, his heart is broken with compassion for the people of Jerusalem. It sort of comes out in the beginning of this verse where he repeats Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's a a Jewish way of sort of emphasizing emotional pathos or, or brokenheartedness. Jesus is thinking of Jerusalem, that once great city, the city where God's temple was was built, the city that was established really as a place for God to literally dwell in the midst of his people, a city that was meant to be a beacon of truth and righteousness for the world, a city where David's throne was established, who was now in Jesus' day nearly completely apostate, completely blind to the truth completely devoid of God's presence, filled with mindless, mechanical, pointless worship, filled with unrighteousness from both the religious leaders on down. And worst of all, they were rejecting him, their long-awaited Messiah. God in human flesh, 
who had come to save them, to deliver them, and they loved their sin and they refused to believe in him in spite of his miracles, in spite of his teaching, in spite of all that he had done over and over and over and over again to show them who he was, and in spite of him calling them time and time and time again to repentance and to faith in him. They loved their sin more, and they refused to repent and trust him. And Jesus thinks of that city and all of the Jewish people who had symbolized. And he's brokenhearted at their lostness. He's broken over their lostness. He uses a, a, the, this metaphor of a mother hen, how often I would have gathered you as a, a hen gathers her brood. He's pulling an Old Testament metaphor here that we see quite often attributed to God, God being compared to a mother bird all throughout the Old Testament. A couple of examples, Psalm 36, verse 7. We see how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge, where? In the shadow of your wings. It's the picture of a mother bird who, whose, whose little birdlets or whatever you call baby birds, I don't know, I just made that word up, find shelter and protection under the loving wings of their mother. You look it up, it's probably real. <laughs> Psalm 91.4, he will cover you with his pinions. Under his wings, you will find refuge. Jesus, when he thought of Jerusalem and he thought of the Jews in general in his day, he knew the danger they were in because of their sinful rebellion. He understood that God's clock was ticking and the judgment was about to fall on these people, on this city, on the temple. He knew that the savage judgment of God was coming and he also knew that if they were willing, he could cover them. That if they would just repent and if they would just run to him and trust him, he could save them. But they weren't willing. They were hardened in their rejection. He knew what was coming to them. He knew what he could provide if they were just willing. But they were not. And it broke his heart. He was moved with compassion, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their endless rejection of him, he still had compassion on them. He doesn't hate the people. He doesn't wish harm on them. He still longs for their repentance and their redemption. He grieves at the coming destruction that they were about to endure. Oh, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to protect you from what's coming. But you're just not willing. At the end of the day, that was the problem. The Jews were not willing to believe in Jesus. They were not willing to recognize him as the promised Messiah. They were not willing to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. They were not willing to abandon their false religion of human works. They were not willing to trust him as Lord and Savior. He longed to save them, but they did not want the salvation he offered. What a sad reality. Similar to something God said to an earlier generation through Ezekiel the prophet in Ezekiel chapter 33. 
in another generation. God said to Ezekiel, go say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear the heart of God pleading for his people? You don't have to die. You don't have to endure the judgment coming. Why will you die when you could live? Just repent and turn. Jesus delivers the same message. The people of Jerusalem, they were absolutely without excuse. They were lost and they were headed to God's eternal judgment, not because he was unwilling to save them, but because they were unwilling to be saved. What a sad reality. And I hope you know at this point that I am absolutely convinced that God is sovereignly in control over salvation. The Bible declares something else that is also very equally true. And that's simply this. Nobody goes to hell against their will. Nobody can say at the end of time, it wasn't my fault. I didn't have a choice. Jesus looks at this city and he says, I long to save you, but you are unwilling to be saved. When somebody doesn't come to Jesus Christ for salvation, it's not because they were not invited, it's because they were not willing to come. Now we can have endless theological debate about where will comes from. But we'll save that for another day. What you need to hear from this text this morning, if you're here today and you have not repented and trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not because you haven't been invited. It's because thus far in your life, you've simply refused to come. And what you need to hear out of the words and the lips of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is that this morning, in spite of your unwillingness to come, in spite of your repeated rejection of him, he has not rejected you. He loves you and is moved with compassion toward you. And he would say to you the same thing he said to Jerusalem, the same thing that God the Father said to Ezekiel the prophet, why will you die when you can live? Turn, repent, believe, come, come and live. But sadly, this generation of Jews, by and large, continue to refuse to come. And Jesus says to them, because of that, behold, your house is forsaken. Your house is forsaken. The rejection of him was bringing God's judgment. The house here is representative of both the city as a whole and the temple specifically. Jesus is saying to the Jews about their temple and about their city and about everything that related to them as God's people. God has forsaken this house. This house is devoid of God's protection at this point. And it's all about to come down. And within a few years, it was all decimated. The Romans came in. They destroyed Jerusalem. 
that destroyed the temple, the death and suffering that took place during that time in human history is unfathomable. The wrath of God poured out on these people in profound ways. And for nearly 2,000, no, actually over 2,000 years since Jesus uttered these words and these things took place in Jerusalem, Israel has still been a people who are spiritually forsaken by God. Generation after generation lives and dies. And in the midst of that, God preserves a small believing remnant and folds them into the church. But however, as a nation, the nation of Israel remains spiritually desolate. Their religion is godless as it was in Jesus' day. Because their house is forsaken. And it remains forsaken. But these awful events that happened to these people in Jerusalem are simply a small picture of what happens to everyone who refuses to repent of their sin and find shelter in Jesus the Messiah. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. The Savior who was compassionate toward a rebellious Israel is compassionate toward you. In spite of your rebellion, he doesn't hate you. He loves you and he longs to redeem you. His blood shed on the cross will cover your sin and shelter you from the judgment of God if you will turn and repent and run to him and find shelter under his wings. But that generation would not. And Jesus says to him in a final pronouncement, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, from Psalm 118, you can look it up later, Psalm 118.26. This was a refrain that was sung as pilgrims sort of traveled on feast days to Jerusalem. And prophetically, both in the Old Testament and New, was something that pointed to a future day a day still that remains in our future. When Christ, who was walking the earth on that day, returns. Returns with, once again, compassion on his people, Israel. After the coming judgment, one day was coming, Jesus was saying, and my compassion will return to this people. Now, there are some people, we won't spend time because we don't have it this morning, who argue that really Jesus is just simply talking about the triumphal entry here. But I just give you a couple of notes about that. Matthew records these same words, and he records Jesus saying them after the triumphal entry. So the words must speak to something that is yet in the future beyond that particular event. What he's talking about is something that happens in a future time well beyond the triumphal entry. It's his return at the end of time when he comes to judge the wicked and reward the righteous. The Old Testament closes with God speaking through Zechariah the prophet, and he speaks about the end times, a time in the future when the house of David, that's Israel, will see Jesus and mourn bitterly in repentance for what they've done to him. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, God says through Zechariah, and on that day, he's talking about the end, the return of the Messiah, <clears throat> I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David 
clearly Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That's all description of bitter repentance. And in chapter 13, verse one, he says, taking about that same day, on that day, <clears throat> there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Israel has been forsaken by God because of their rejection of Christ. And they remain under the judgment of God to this day. But there is a day coming when God will once again show his compassion to his people. He'll open their eyes to see him for who he is. They'll understand their sin for what it is. And they'll repent before him. I don't know how all that's going to work out at the end of time. I just know that it will. And what I see is a compassionate Christ who stands before a people who hate him and are rejecting him and who will ultimately kill him and who says to them, in spite of all your angst and your evil, I love you. And I long for nothing more than for you to be redeemed and for you to escape the awful judgment of God that is coming. My friends, the world around us needs to see Christians who lead with that kind of compassion. Christians who look out at the world of people who are very different from us, even those who revile and despise us and what we stand for, even those who would throw nasty attacks our way and seek to persecute the church of Christ. The world needs to see a response of compassion. People who look back at them not with hatred, not with vengeance, not with vitriol, but with a heart that simply says, how we long that you'd be saved. You don't have to die. You can live. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Unfortunately, if you've been around the Christian church very long in your life, you know that churches can sometimes be the coldest, most judgmental environments that a person could enter. We bite and snipe at one another, gossip and criticize each other. We're quite frequently slow to listen and quick to speak. We can be selfish and our egos can thrive at other people's expense. It's very easy for us to fall into a pattern of hating the lost, the sinful, outsiders, sinners, people who are not like us. And what the world needs to see and what the church needs to see are leaders and godly people who are people driven by compassion, who are moved by compassion, whose actions are driven by compassion, whose attitudes are driven by compassion, who are not quick to condemn, but are quick to offer salvation and redemption. Jesus Christ amazes me more and more the further we go through Luke's gospel. Does he not to you? To see that kind of courage mixed with that kind of compassion is a remarkable thing. 
And when I see how high he sets the bar in that, I don't know about you, but I see how far I fall short of the bar. Do you? And on the one hand, it makes me ashamed, and on the other hand, it inspires me to be more like him. I hope it does the same for you. Because the world around us needs Christians who are courageous and who are compassionate. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're remarkable in every way. We marvel at you the longer we look at you. The more we see you for who you are, the more amazed we are. And the more we see who you are, the more we see clearly who we are not. And we thank you in spite of how far we fall short. Even in that, you look at us with compassion, not condemnation. And you call us to follow you. Lord, I pray that for the believers who are in this room, that they would see your courage and compassion and that they would be driven to model that in their own lives. That they would be driven to model it in their homes and in whatever sphere of influence they have, wherever you've given them leadership, that the people around them would see believers who love Jesus, who are courageous and yet compassionate. Pray that that would be the truth of my life and my leadership. And Lord, for those who are in this room who don't know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would hear from you loud and clear today that you love them, you don't hate them. That in spite of their rejection of you, you haven't rejected them. That you are just as willing to save them today as you've always been if they'll simply turn, repent and bow before you as Lord and Savior of their life. May they hear from you the words, why would you die when you can live? Just come. By your spirit, I pray you would make that the reality today in this place for your glory alone. Amen.